advice, advice from someone else's dad. Hi everyone, it's Peter Yawitz and welcome to the Advice from Someone Else's Dad podcast. None of us can really get too uh, attached or enamored with our grand vision because we can't even imagine, you know, it's hard to imagine five or 10 years what, what the world's even gonna look like, let sure. alone what our, sure. our careers are gonna be. That was from my amazing young CEO interview with Connor Demond Yeoman, the co-founder and CEO of Philanthropy University, the world's largest trainer of nonprofits and social enterprises. We'll hear more of my interview with Connor in this episode. I'll also be answering your workplace questions along with my favorite HR Pro co-host, Jamie Steele. Finally, I'll read one of your workplace nightmares. If you'd like to ask a question or share one of your workplace nightmares, call us at 347-857-7294. That's 347-857-7294. You can also go to someoneelsesdad.com slash podcast and submit a question there completely anonymously, or you can simply email us at questions at someoneelsesdad.com. And don't forget to subscribe, like, and comment. First up, let's check in with Jamie Steele, my HR Pro co-host, to talk about some workplace issues on our mind this week. Hey, Jamie. How are you? I'm great, Peter. How are you? I'm great, too. Uh, So why don't you tell us what's on your mind? Well, you know, so I'm out here visiting New York, yes. which it's fabulous, by the way. Love it. Wish I could live here, but also, I mean, I do love Minnesota. But anyway, <laughs> one of the friends that I'm visiting, he was asking me for my advice on how to approach the topic of how much he makes. Uh-huh. And so last night, we're at his apartment, and he's saying, you know, I've been in my position for about five years, and I know because my manager told me that I'm the lowest paid manager among those in my team. And I said, okay, well, first of all, why would she tell you that? And um, what are the other managers making? Right. And he said, well, it came up because I said, you know, my program's expanding. I'm taking on more work. I'd like to obviously get a raise because my job description and what I do now is far different from when I started. And I said, so then she just told you, oh, yeah, you're the lowest paid manager. And he said, well, no, it was a back and forth exchange. And she said, you know, you actually are really due for a more of a formal evaluation because we've hired on new people who are coming in making at least $10,000 more per year than you are. Wow. So, of course, this got him thinking, well, I've been doing this job way longer. Why am I making the least amount? And so he said, well, what do I do? I'm surprised she didn't say anything or the manager didn't say that, right? We're hiring people who do what you do or less than you do, and they're being paid more. So talk to you later. Bye. (laughs) Right. So, you know, I said, well, can you explicitly identify how your position has changed, what you're doing in comparison to the new managers who are coming in and really be able to give very concrete examples of what your job was when you started and what it is today. Mm-hmm. So I said, it's hard to, as, as a HR professional or a hiring manager, when someone comes to you and says, I should be making more money because I do way more, right. but they don't have a definitive That's idea. Right. So That's I said, right. let's start with identifying what changes have taken place. And then I said, you can ask for something called a department equity uh, comparison. What is that? Never even heard of that. Yeah. What that means is um, anytime a department hires ideally, if HR is working well, Mm. is every person will be sort of, let's just say it's on a spreadsheet and you have, here's how many years they've been working, here's this specific job title, and here's what each of them makes. And so when a new hire comes in, 
they look and say, well, we've got this person who has this many years of experience and they've been in this position. So we want to make sure this new hire doesn't come in above that person. Right. And if they do, then we need to adjust what that person who's already on site makes. Okay. So that's what the manager should do. But let's go back yes. to your friend and anybody who feels that, you know, they want to know what I should do if I feel I'm not being paid appropriately, especially if other people are being paid more doing the same job. Right. It first starts with identifying why you think you should be paid more. That's right. And that's really the foundation of everything. If you have a solid, concrete, you know, list of here's what I'm doing and this is why, this is far beyond the scope of what I thought, because sometimes jobs have to be renegotiated. That's right. Uh, and if you can make that clear kind of statement case in writing, that's your best chance of being able to say, I think I need a formal job evaluation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In my book, I actually talk about this and, and really talk about specific markers about things that I've done. And if you can actually quantify how the firm has benefited from some of your work too, I think that's even a stronger point to Absolutely. relate to your manager. Young people who feel that they want deserve a raise, and I, and, and I don't want to say no, you don't deserve a raise. I think you should go through formal formal channels, but also be very prepared with all the backup material you possibly can to be able to Absolutely. show why you are worthy of a raise. Yep. Great. Jamie and I will be back a little later to answer some questions listeners have submitted. The number again, 347-857-7294. But now my interview with Connor Demon Yeoman, founder and CEO of Philanthropy University and one of Forbes magazine's 30 Under 30. Connor says his mission is to provide training to under-resourced change makers around the world, especially those who want to start organizations that can serve their local communities. He said he had no grand career plan, but wanted to do something in education. That led to doing very different things like teaching rural poor in Africa and running B2B at Coursera, the online education platform. I'm here today with Connor Demon Yeoman, who is the co-founder and CEO at Philanthropy University, which is quite different from some of the other companies that I speak with. Uh, welcome, Connor. Nice to talk to you. Thanks so much, Peter. It's great to be on. Well, before we talk about your background and, and things that you can say that you represent for your generation, which I'm sure you feel you absolutely can, uh, <laughs> I would love to know a little bit about Philanthropy University. Let us know uh, what it is that you do and and how successful it's been, because I've read a lot of wonderful things. Sure. And, and always happy to be the mouthpiece for my generation. I feel oh, very equipped yeah, to do that. <laughs> uh, Philanthropy University, we are uh, the largest trainer of nonprofits and social enterprises around the world. So we focus on providing uh, mission-oriented organizations, social impact organizations with the skills and the resources that they need to do the great work that they're doing on the ground. And uh, I'm the most biased person on the planet, but we have been tremendously <laughs> successful to date. We've reached hundreds of thousands of these social impact leaders around the world. Well, that's great. You know, when you talk about we've been very successful and congratulations on that, some people have different metrics for what constitutes success. So in the non-for-profit world, it's not necessarily uh, financial. When you said you, you seem very proud of the work that you've done by being a provider, is that how you quantify, if we can even quantify success? Yeah, it's such a good question. It's actually something that I, I struggle with. Uh, you know, coming from the for-profit sector, I was at a company, I was one of the early employees at a company called Coursera. Oh, yeah, sure. Similar, yeah, yes, similar courses. that it's a... Yep, online uh, courses. Yep, and 
online courses, um, you know, MOOCs and, and, and training. That's where your background was. I mean, so you understood the online course work from course. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I kind of pivoted this to, to the social impact space. And uh, but yeah, it's, it's a difficult question because we don't, you know, in the nonprofit sector, we don't have that clear proxy uh, value, uh, which is, you know, are people buying what, what you're selling? Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, we have we have a, 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 you know, much more complex web of signals, right? Because we have donors who are, you know, supporting our work. Right. So very that's, that's financial that. success that you're, you're looking right. for that, right? Right. But then we have, then we have, you know, metrics from, from our users on the ground. We have self-reported qualitative assessments. How, how, how helpful were these courses? How, how have they been applied to your work and, and improved your ability to, to affect change in your local communities? We have, you know, quantitative metrics. Well, one way for us to understand it is if you gave us an example of something you're immensely proud of. Probably mo- most recently, we just uh, we launched a an, an entirely new product um, and, and set of offerings that are were focused on providing unrestricted grants to a number of local organizations on the ground, predominantly in emerging economies. Mm-hmm. And so we have this handful of truly inspiring organizations um, that uh, beat out hundreds of others uh, for this for this award and hearing about these organizations hearing about the work that they're doing and then how our training and how our grants are actually advancing let me just interrupt in saying that we'll have the link to the website on on my my podcast page someone else's dad.com slash podcast but you can also go to philanthropy you that's a letter u.org and look for the blog where the title is 2019 Transforming Lives Awards Winners Announced. Going to that site, you can see this is a really good sampling of the um, of the diversity of, the, of, of our user base, who we're serving and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from, uh, you know, for-profit organization in, in India uh, called Plastics for Change that's focused on um, working with supply chains of waste management and and helping to to you know, minimize, uh, minimize waste in, in, in those, in those supply chains. And there's so many good organizations. There's so many local leaders who are stepping up to, to address them, whether it's for, you know, environment or youth empowerment or, or workforce development or women and girls, you know, it's, uh, and then these are the types of people that we serve here. You know, we serve the under-resourced change makers around the world who want to step up and make a difference and start organizations that can can serve their local communities. Did you provide coursework for them too, specific coursework to help them? Is that what you provided? Yeah, so we we provided um, a, a couple things. So we uh, provided $600,000 in grants um, uh, amongst them. But then the the um, in addition to that, we provided access to our core product. And this is really where we invest the majority of our, our, our organization's time and resources in creating a completely open, completely free um, platform. I spent a lot of time talking to leaders who are in the for-profit space, and a lot of people had a vision about what they wanted to do after college. It sounds like uh, you had a vision about getting into this based on your experience with Coursera, but did you have this vision of working in this space specifically? No, no, I didn't. I think that I, I have been guided by a um, a consistent interest in education mm-hmm. 
and and that has taken me to a lot of weird, interesting places. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've taught uh, the rural poor in, in in Ghana and South Africa. So it was something about education that you knew you wanted to do, but it wasn't a master plan of where you wanted to be with it. Oh God, no, no. I was just really moved by the potential of education, and I found it, you know, just in, intrinsically super interesting. Um, and uh, so it was just it was, but it was one thing after another. But I had no grand master plan. I, I mean, I still don't. <laughs> and I think that uh, people who have a grand master plan at this age, I should be doing this, are setting themselves up for failure because they can only be disappointed if they don't achieve it by a certain time. So I'm a big fan of having many chapters in your life, and and road takes many different turns. And it sounds like uh, you had a general idea where you ended up in education, but it sounds it's a little bit twisty to get to this place. Yeah, super twisty. And I and I think that we're just going to see that more and more. Work is going to change so frequently. None of us can really get too uh, attached or enamored with our grand vision because we can't even imagine, you know, it's hard to imagine five or 10 years what, what the world's even going to look like, let sure. alone what our sure. our careers are going to be. Yeah. When I think about when I started my career many years ago, my job in the middle of business school, I recommended that I could use a computer to do a spreadsheet and I was almost laughed at. But uh, so they, I, they so, burned you for being a being a witch, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I I, I died. I mean, it really was, <laughs> it didn't end well. And you're back. Yeah, you're back yeah. doing a podcast. It's I amazing. Know. It was pretty amazing <laughs> that I've been resurrected. But what, when you speak, I know that you lecture at Stanford. People ask you what you would recommend to them. I I, I occasionally get questions like that. It's like you have these these broad themes or these hunches of like, ah, something about this really makes me feel alive, or I really enjoy that type of work. And, and I think what, what matters so much more than having a grand plan or master vision, which I think most of the time is, is, is not genuine or, or contrived or is contrived is focusing on, uh, trying something assessing it and then focusing more on immersing yourself in that experiment or in that experience and focusing on mastery, focusing on doing really good work. Um, That sounds great, Connor. Uh, The question I always ask everybody, since I am giving advice to someone else's dad, uh, do you ever listen to advice from your own dad? Always. (laughs) Damn it. Of course. (laughs) I think what he's instilled in me is the the value of viewing work or any activity as a craft mm-hmm. really trying to to not just focus on what you're doing but how you're doing it mm-hmm. and to hone kind of an um uh a kind of an artisan like mentality whether you are you know working on a, a proposal at work or you're you're uh you know installing a a bathroom. Well, that sounds good. I mean, the way I deal with doing things right is usually to outsource because I can't trust myself to do anything right. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the difference between your dad and me. And the advice I give is find an expert who can do it for you. Uh, anyway, I'm just impressed that you didn't outsource this interview. It's great. I get... <laughs> this I'm is so not really proud. Peter you're talking to. <laughs> yeah. I'm just pretending to be. Uh, you'll never you? know. You'll never know. <laughs> Well, Connor Demon Yeoman, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. I, I, I 
congratulate you on your success in creating this philanthropy university, but also the success that you feel, that I, it sounds like to me, you've created for yourself. And uh, that's more important than anything else. Well, thank you, Peter. If that is your real name, I, uh, <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed it as well. And, uh, and, and best of luck with the, with the show and, and, uh, and hope to be in touch. Thanks okay, again. Thanks so much. Take <laughs> Bye. That was from my interview with Connor Demond Yeoman. Up next, Jamie and I answer your workplace questions. Our number is 347-857-7294. This is advice from someone else's dad. I'm Peter Yawith with Jamie Steele. Here's our first call. Hi, this is Aaron. What would you recommend? I went to an interview for a job today. I bought a new outfit, inconvenienced my husband since he took an extended lunch break to watch the kids for me, arrived 12 minutes early, and guess what? The manager didn't show up. When the front desk called her to see where she was, she said she got wrapped up with an AC guy at home and totally forgot I was coming. She asked if I could return later that afternoon, and I explained that my husband took off work to watch the kids and that he needed to get back to work. I know accidents happen, but I'm also trying to remember my self-worth here. Should I reschedule? I just can't imagine if I had done this to her, no way would I have gotten the job. Thanks. Okay, I, th- I think for my take is on this is accidents do happen. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and how many? I mean, I don't want to say how many times have I forgotten to do something, but (laughs) if you ask my family, they'd probably say a lot. Uh, Unfortunately, it happened to this woman at that time. And my advice would be, you know, send an email. I would hope the person would send a very mea culpa email back to you. But of course, I would reschedule. Yeah, absolutely. I would recommend rescheduling unless there was some kind of just really strong feeling that this was sort of indicative of what you might have felt when you initially started the process. Yeah. Otherwise, give people the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely reschedule. Yeah. And when we talk about if, if it's indicative of the process, if you wrote and said, sorry, you know, I came up and apparently you weren't here. If you don't get an apologetic email, that might be a sign about what the company's like. Bingo. But otherwise, sure, reschedule. And if she does it again, okay, that's another indication. There you go. Yep. Hi, my name is Tiffany. I have a question. Um, for some weird reason, my daughter's name and date of birth ended up on my coworker's insurance info in addition to mine. My coworker and I each emailed HR to see if they could correct the problem. Now, HR seems to be more concerned with my coworker's info rather than the fact that my child's information is out there. At first, I wasn't terribly worried, but now I feel it's the principle of the thing since HR didn't call me to discuss it, only my coworker. Just wondering if I should be worried. Thanks. So, you know, this situation actually has happened while I've been working where, you know, for one reason or another, say um, you're doing a mail merge in an Excel file, which typically happens when you're going through everyone's information. You want to make sure all of your I's are dotted, T's are crossed. But for whatever reason, your mail merge goes wrong and maybe it's one line off. So you realize everyone's off. And then every now and then there's those outliers. So of course, if an HR rep sees that everyone's off, they can see the obvious problem that occurred with trying to get an Excel spreadsheet over to um, a vendor such as Blue Cross Blue Shield Mm -hmm. or some other major network um, for healthcare. However, if there are those instances where just one person's affected or not, of course, you want your HR rep to be apologetic and obviously let you know that they're doing everything they can to rectify the situation and confirm it's been done. 
That being said, I just want to say that uh, if that does happen, it was obviously not on purpose. Right. <laughs> and it, every now and then it can happen, but it's not because that information is going over and getting on that person's file. In this situation, just as this, you know, caller said, um, she's active on the right insurance. It's just her information. So regardless, you obviously want an HR person that addresses it right away, but also it's not the end of the world. It's an easy fix, something they can take care of right away. And it's generally not indicative of a huge problem. Yeah. What about the issue of your kid's information out there? When your kid is on your policy, of course, information has to be listed. I'm sure it's private. But as a parent, or you and I are both parents, you're very protective of your kids' private information, as you would be for your own information, but especially for your kids. How does HR handle something like that? Again, this is a situation where typically it's truly one of those scenarios where it's, you know, maybe one in, in whatever large number. So hopefully you're not seeing it too many times. But obviously, the only thing HR can really do is assure you that they have a process. They can share what that process is with you and that by and large, it does work and people's information has kept confidential because obviously you're not going to go into an open enrollment period where people are making their um, elections and things like that and not have a very solid HIPAA compliant process in right. place. That's spoken like a true good HR <laughs> professional. Good advice. Coming up next, I read this week's workplace nightmare. Okay, in our annals of workplace nightmares, here's another one. I had to write up a direct report for being disruptive in-house and downright rude to outside vendors. I gave her the formal notification late one afternoon. She Xeroxed the write-up and handed it out to colleagues she thought would stand up for her. One of them indeed came to me and said, wow, I've never had any trouble with her. I was so done with this employee's behavior, I stood in her office door and said, okay, you want to play this game? Fine. Let's hand this out at the weekly departmental meeting and see which of us gets voted off this island. I admit this was a nightmare both ways. Both her and mine were overreactions. No vote was taken, but the island was considerably more tranquil after she left. Ugh. Ouch. Ouch is right. Really toxic personality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've never dealt with any toxic personality, so I'm never going to. Oh, yeah, to never. Do, never. No. I.E. Peter. Family. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. How dare you? I'm going to write this up. Hey, thanks for joining us for this episode of Advice from Someone Else's Dad. Many thanks to Connor Demond Yeoman and, of course, to my co-host, Jamie Steele. Next time, there'll be more answers to your questions and more workplace nightmares. Remember, you can call us at 347-857-7294, go to someoneelsesdad.com slash podcast and submit a question there completely anonymously, or, of course, you can just email us at questions at someoneelsesdad.com. All questions are always anonymous. We appreciate your comments. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on any other platform you use, and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Someone Else's Dad. You can also learn more about my book, Flip Flops and Microwave Fish, Navigating the Do's and Don'ts of Workplace Culture, which you can pre-order on Amazon before the January 14th launch, launch date. I'm Peter Yawit. See you next time at Advice from Someone Else's Dad. Advice from someone else's dad.